Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Spoiler alert. This is going to sound a little bit like Twilight Zone. Like that show, this is all about making up a story and then inserting it into an uncertain reality. If you understand it, if you take the time to understand it, you will cause the foreclosure mill to fret and groan and probably lose because they really have no claim. Making up stories is fun, but with foreclosures, it isn't for entertainment. It's all about selling bets on how the story ends. If you can sell enough bets, it doesn't matter what the reality looks like. And although the story is entirely fictional, the more one can connive and conceive of possible story endings, the more bets one can sell. If you want to sum up the story of securitization, that's it. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and I'm broadcasting live from Duval County this 22nd day of April 2021. So... I'm not Rod Serling, for those of you who even remember that name. So forgive the fact that I don't build the the suspense like he did. But imagine a street, Main Street, in the center of every town USA. There's a shop, a jewelry shop, that buys and sells precious gems, metals, and jewelry. There are two owners, Abe and Josh. A woman comes into the store and asks what she could be paid in exchange for ownership of a ring containing an emerald. After proper examination, the jewelers, Abe and Josh, agree to pay her $2,500, which she accepts, and the deal is made. They take the gem, she takes the money. The ring and the stone could have been sold legally in an event in the real world in which they paid cash and received a gem, and they also got a signed bill of sale from the real owner of the gem. Let me point out that that bill of sale is not the gem. That's very obvious when you're talking about a bill of sale and a rock. But it isn't so obvious to people when you're talking about a note and an obligation. Same thing. So the note 
is not the obligation. The obligation is not the note. The gem is not the bill of sale. The bill of sale is not the gem. The bill of sale transfers ownership of the gem. And transfer of the note is generally presumed to be a transfer of ownership of the obligation, but it isn't unless somebody paid for it. So let's start adding things to the story. First, a simple addition to the story is that the woman didn't own the ring. So what did Abe and Josh get as owners of the jewelry store? Legally, they got nothing except a stolen gem. What's that worth? Well, that depends upon what they do with it. When they find out that the woman didn't own it, they could contact the police, give back the gem, and they'd be out $2,500. But if they don't tell anybody they paid for a stolen gem, they might possibly pass it off in a new sale and retrieve their $2,500 plus a customary profit, as is usual in a jewelry store. But in the gem world, there are almost always insurers. And before accepting a delivery, a buyer is going to want insurance. If the buyer can't get insurance, he probably will not make the purchase. The insurer is going to want to know that the object that they are insuring is real, that it currently exists, that it is in the custody and control person who is going to be the insured and who's paying the premium, and that this person has title. All of those things are slightly different things in the law. So they're looking for a clear lineage of ownership referred to in mortgages as chain of custody, chain of title, and so forth. But Abe and Josh are afraid the insurance company will figure out that they don't have a clear chain of custody and ownership and that the insurance company might actually report them as attempting to sell a stolen gem. What to do? Go to the police? No, they don't want to do that. The next part comes from an old joke. The gem belongs to the corporation that Abe and Josh created to own the jewelry shop. The corporation's name is Abe and Josh Jewelry. So Abe and Josh Jewelry purchases the gem from the woman, and then Abe purchases the gem from Abe and Josh Jewelry, allegedly for his wife, at a higher price. There's now a profit on paper. Now there's a new bill of sale. So you have one bill of sale, you got another. A few days later, he cut, returns the gem for a refund. Now there's yet another bill of sale where he signs it back over to Abe and Josh Jewelry. A few days later, Josh purchases the gem at an even higher price. Now there's yet another bill of sale. A few days later, Josh returns the gem for a refund, and that's another bill of sale from Josh back to 
Abe and Josh Jewelry. Financial institutions are just like any other big organization. They rely on people. And when a person comes from an insurance company to satisfy themselves that there is clear chain of title to the gem, they will be presented with this stack of bills of sale. It is human nature to accept a statement as being true if it is backed up by paperwork. And the more paperwork, the more the assertion is believed. But none of this changes the fact that the gem was not owned by the woman in the first place, nor was it legally purchased. Hence, the store could not possibly legally sell it. If the insurance company was insuring the jewelry store and the jewelry store made a claim, it is quite probable that the insurance company would raise the defense that the jewelry store never owned the gem. And therefore, the loss should fall on the jewelry store, not the insurance company. But since the insurance company, in our example, is insuring the buyer, they are assuming the risk that the sale may not have transferred legal title. So when the next buyer comes along, they will see not only a lot of paperwork, but also an insurance binder that shows that the insurance company had satisfied itself as to the existence and ownership of the gem. So the first buyer that comes along has an insurance company, they check out, they see a stack of all these transactions, and they agree to insure it. The next buyer from that buyer also has an insurance company, but the insurance company just relies on the work that was done before. So it was relying on the stack of documents where Abe and Josh Jewelry was reporting profits from the sale and return, et cetera, of, uh, of the gem and the existence of a prior insurance policy. The next buyer will most likely refrain from doing any investigation into title. It will rely instead on all the apparent preceding transactions in which the probability of clear title appears to rise with each supposed transaction and each insurance policy and each new buyer. Down the road, do we really want the buyer 100 years from now, might be the 10th buyer, to be able to claim insurance proceeds or, ins or rescission of a transaction because the original woman who walked into Abe and Josh's jewelry last century had no title? Society's answer is no. And that is expressed in a number of statutes that limit such claims by time and other factors, statute of limitations, etc. So the stolen gem achieves legal title over time, even though it originated with a thief in an illegal transaction. Foreclosure mills and document preparation services especially those that rely on supposedly automated processes, check my blog, you'll see some stuff about that. They regularly use the layers of paper model and the insurance model to create 
an apparent reality out of pure fantasy. Society has stated in all U.S. jurisdictions that the one thing that needs to be true before anyone can file anything in support of a claim for foreclosure is that that party must have paid value for the underlying obligation. That's true because all U.S. jurisdictions have adopted verbatim Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code. And that's what it says. Condition precedent to enforcement is payment of value for the underlying obligation. Most people give no thought to the elaborate scheme in which documents are created exclusively for use in civil actions. The fact that such a statement is true is reason enough to exclude that evidence but the failure of almost every homeowner and lawyer for homeowner to timely and properly object is the reason it comes into evidence anyway. In most cases, there are no do-overs. Society doesn't care about who wins. It cares about how to settle the dispute with finality, regardless of whether the decision is right or wrong. Lay people see this as biased by judges. They see it as evidence that the judges are corrupt. The truth is that judges are simply doing their job. And I know people hate me for saying that, but it's true. Litigation is like a tennis game. A world champion is going to lose the point to a four-year-old if that four-year-old manages to hit the ball over the net and the champion does nothing. The referees don't care about who should have won the point. They only care about who did. No document prepared solely for court can be admitted into evidence in the court record. That's part of the law, procedural law, substantive law. The reason is simple. It obviously is not a document memorializing or giving evidence of the existence of a transaction. It's just a document about a document. It is instead a document reporting the existence of a transaction by a person who by definition is knowledgeable about and has an interest in the outcome of litigation, but who has no interest in the outcome of the non-existent transaction. So they're interested in winning, but they're not interested in the actual outcome and they don't much care where the money goes, except for the fee or salary paid for preparing, executing, or testifying about the false document. Once it is proffered, once a false document with false information and a false notary and uh, electronically or mechanically signed, the court must accept it just because it was proffered with testimony that says, yeah, that's the document of transfer. That's all they basically need. The court will accept it unless it is obvious that the document is plainly absurd or irrelevant to the issues before the court. 
The presence of such evidence in the court record requires the judge to enter findings of fact and conclusions of law favorable to the foreclosure mill and the claimant that they named who probably does not even exist. Given the fact that there are no business or monetary transactions in the real world, how does a document get admitted into evidence when it purports to be a memorialization of non-existent events between either non-existent or disinterested parties? How does the foreclosure mill get such a fabricated, forged, backdated, and false document into evidence? More importantly, how does the owner prevent such a miscarriage of justice? The first phase is identifying what they need. That data is communicated to the next vendor who prepares the missing document. So if you look at this the way I do and the way anyone does who understands the, the securitization scheme, the central party is an investment bank. So that investment bank is giving directions to all these players. So data is communicated to a vendor who in turn communicates some data and instructions to another vendor and then another vendor and another vendor and you can see my example, one bill of sale on top of another in essence is happening. So the data is communicated to the next vendor who prepares the missing document, the assignment of mortgage. That document is printed out by the next vendor who sends it to the next vendor. The next vendor hires robo-signers, which is akin to something uh, called dry, dry labbing, a term I just learned from a show that described the illicit activities of chemists in Massachusetts who signed certificates in criminal cases without ever doing the testing. They were just sitting there signing certificates, which means that they were lying about ever having done a test, just like the robo-signer is lying about knowing anything about the transaction for which he's signing on an assignment of mortgage, an endorsement of a note, or anything. Massachusetts tried to do everything to maintain the status quo on illegal convictions until the Supreme Court of Massachusetts forced them to dismiss and reverse over 20,000 convictions. But it took years. Attorney General Martha Coakley tried to resist this. The point was not whether the people who had been wrongfully convicted might have been guilty anyway. The point was that it was the state's burden to prove their case without the fabricated testing certificate. If they did, could not prove it without the false certificate, it did not matter whether the person had performed the act about which they had been accused. They were required to be acquitted. In foreclosures, the point is not whether there is a loan or whether the homeowner owes any money. The point is whether the named claim, 
claimant, as named by the foreclosure mill, can prove that they own the underlying obligation because that claimant has paid value in the real world in exchange for a document of ownership for the underlying obligation from someone who in turn had paid value for ownership and owned the underlying obligation. It's a lot of words. You may want to listen to this again. The issue is not whether the loan was in default. The issue is whether the claimant has any legal basis for receiving any relief. The fact that I might know that you have a bill outstanding doesn't mean that I have any right to claim you need to pay me. It might be true. It might not be. Maybe you've got counterclaims or other defenses against the party that you promised to pay. Maybe the debt went away because of other transactions. We don't know. What we do know is that I don't have any right to collect from you just because I know that you once promised to make a payment. Just as in the Massachusetts lab test, if there was no cocaine, the intent or other potential, uh, potentially illegal activity is irrelevant. If there is no claim in foreclosure that can be legally attributed to the claimant, then the possibility that there was a loan or that it could possibly have been in default is irrelevant, especially if a real owner of the underlying obligation had not declared it in default. There is no default. In dry labbing, at least the real sample comes into the lab, although it is never tested. In mortgage robo-signing, the real loan never comes into any of the companies that participate in preparing documents exclusively for civil court. The people signing the documents usually have no idea about the legal meaning of the document they are signing and definitely have no idea whether the document should be signed or is authorized to be signed by anyone possessing the legal authority. And no one possesses the legal authority unless it comes ultimately from somebody who what? Paid value for the underlying obligation. And then you have the robo-witnesses who come from yet another vendor claiming to be a servicer for an entity named as grantee on fabricated robo-signed documents. It is the essence of a criminal enterprise, in my opinion. The robo-witness testifies that the completed documents is a business record of his or her employer when nothing could be further from the truth. Those documents produced by Aquin or PHH or Select Portfolio, whatever, they are prepared at some central server by a company that is not controlled by the company claiming to be the servicer. So it is not a business record of the company employing the witness, and therefore it is hearsay, and there is no exception to the hearsay rule. Lay people and lawyers who are not expert in the law and rules of evidence fail to object or to properly state grounds for objection 
for allowing the document to be entered into evidence. The failure to object results in this. The trial judge is now required to accept the proffer into evidence. And that one event is usually the point where the homeowner has lost and the fakers have won. And I have repeatedly said that the result is not bias. It is the result of bad litigating. I know people hate me for saying that because they've been through it and they don't want to think that they didn't know what they were doing, but they didn't. So if you want to take this one step further, suppose Abe and Josh want to sell the gem many times over without being arrested. Well, the first thing they need to do is to legally separate whatever they're selling from ownership of the gem. Sounds crazy, right? Only on Wall Street. But to make sure that they couldn't be accused of selling the same thing over and over again and ending up in jail, they would need to get rid of the actual gem. So Abe and Josh hire an underwriter, securities firm, to help them with the issue, the creation and issuance of paper promises to make scheduled payments to people who buy the paper. Those payments are based upon the data performance, not the ownership of the market value of the gem. So the value of the gem goes up. The paper might be worth something. Value goes down. Depends on the bet. Paper might be worth something. So Abe and Josh also get a trusted rating agency to say that this is a very conservative investment, very high grade, even though it isn't. And they get an insurance company to make certain payments should the price of the gem drop in the open market. But the insurance payment is payable to Abe and Josh and it's not about ownership. It's about the data reported about the price of the gem if it existed. To make absolutely certain that there's no connection between ownership of the gem and the securities being created, issued, sold, and traded, the underwriter pays Abe and Josh Jewelry Store $2,500, but does not take possession of the gem and does not get a bill of sale, and does not enter the gem on its accounting records as an asset. So Abe and Josh are paid off, and nobody owns it. If the shenanigans are unraveled, so will the entire scheme and the amount of money generated from investors, which vastly exceeds the original value of the gem, will all need to be refunded. So the only possible way out is to destroy the gem and do everything possible to keep up the pretense that it is still there. So they need it gone, but they need it they need to keep the illusion that it's still there. Nobody can make a claim for ownership, insurance proceeds, or anything else related to ownership of the actual gem. So that gem has to be gone. In foreclosure, the stone is the underlying obligation. And without that, there is no claim for foreclosure. So, point of tonight's show, 
bottom line, if you don't do discovery and you don't raise objections, there's no do-over. An appeal is probably not going to do you any good. And the failure to discovery and the failure to object at the time the evidence is being proffered will result in the evidence coming in, and it will come in to prove the truth of the matter asserted, which is that you owe money, and you owe money to the claimant, even though the claimant might not exist and doesn't own the claim. That's it for tonight. Thanks for joining me. See you next week with more exciting news about the new wave of foreclosures. Good night. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.